Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. I want to let you know that our small groups will be restarting for the new year this week. Uh, Wednesday night, we have a online Zoom small group. And if you want the link, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com and we will get you the link. The reason we don't post it publicly is uh, so that we keep any kind of uh, Zoom bombers from happening. But we have a good time. We pray together. We check in on one another. And we have questions that we go over from this message. So what I'm going to talk about now, it gets talked about in the Wednesday night Zoom small group. So if you've ever wanted to go deeper into what we're studying in the Word of God, that's the opportunity. So Wednesday nights, 7 p.m., our Zoom small group. Last week, we started a new series uh, looking at the book of Daniel, and we're looking at what it means to live as an exile. An exile is somebody who lives in a foreign land, somebody who lives in exile. And sometimes that is temporary. Uh, I'm reading a biography of Charles de Gaulle right now. He was the leader of the Free French during World War II. And just before France fell to the Nazis, de Gaulle was put on a plane and given a suitcase that had about $100,000 in it, give or take. And he was sent back to London and basically given the task of continuing France in exile. And there were many governments in exile in London during that time. You, you were the, uh, you know, there was the, the Polish government in exile, the Dutch government, the Norwegian government. You were Norwegian, you were French, you were Polish, but you were living in exile in a foreign land. And for them, it was a, a relatively short time, you know, five, six years, which I'm, I don't mean to do, belittle their suffering, but then there are people who live in exile for their whole life. They can never return. And there's different reasons why that is, but uh, an exile is somebody who is living their life in a land that is not their home. And so we're going to be looking at how as Christians, because we know that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we are living our lives here among the kingdoms of earth. So how do we do that? Daniel chapter one says this. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Asphanaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring to the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude in every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were trained for three years, and after that they were to enter 
the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved to not defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid that my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them to be ten times better than the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. The first two verses of Daniel chapter 1 tell us this. God was at work. God had been working in the past. God was working in Daniel's present. How do I know this? Because in ancient times, if a king invaded a kingdom and took the, in most cases, their gods. You, you invaded a kingdom, you went into the temple in the capital, and you took the idols, the statues. Now, in the case of the Jews, they didn't have idols or statues, so he took everything he could find. Any plate, any, uh, any item that was used for service in the temple system of sacrifice. He took, and he took it back to the storerooms of the temple of his false god in Babylon. From the outside world, they would think that the god of the Babylonians had defeated the god, Yahweh, of the Jews. But what Daniel declares is that it was actually the Lord, Yahweh, because whenever you see Lord in all capital letters in, in the Old Testament, it's, it's the indicator that this is uh, the name, the name of God. And whether it's supposed to be Yahweh or Jehovah, 
doesn't matter. The point is, what Daniel is saying is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not defeated. In fact, he allowed this to happen. So God had been at work like we talked about last week. God had been prophesying for at least 150 years through his, his messengers, the prophets, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, and no doubt through others. God had been warning his people of this coming Babylonian invasion. God was at work. He had been at work before, and now in the middle of all this, God is at work. And as we just read in Daniel's first three years of captivity, Daniel chapter 1 covers a period of about three years. God was at work in that time too. This is encouraging. America has just gone through one of the worst weeks of our history. Uh, I heard one commentator say that this is the worst week, that um, Wednesday was the worst day in American history since 9-11. And I'm quite honestly inclined to agree. And yet God is still at work. And I want to say this as a word of comfort and encouragement. My heart broke this week as we saw our fellow countrymen, our fellow countrywomen, take up arms and storm our capital. My heart broke at that evil. Just as my heart has been breaking all year to see unrest and, and, and injustice and, and mob violence all through our country and through our own region. But God is at work, and I may not see it right now. You may not see it right now. I guarantee in the moment when Daniel was captured and put in chains and marched back to Babylon, in fact, secular history tells us that the reason that Nebuchadnezzar went back to Babylon when he did was because he learned of the death of his father, and so he needed to get back to Babylon to secure his succession to the throne of the whole empire. So they quick marched back to Babylon. What would normally have been a journey of a month or two, they did in a few weeks. And in the middle of that, I guarantee it didn't feel to Daniel as if God was at work. But now when he writes his account of this time, he says, he acknowledges, he declares that God was at work. And God has been at work all of this year, and God was at work on Wednesday, even though I didn't see it. I'm going to be honest, I didn't see it. As my heart broke, as I grieved, as I had my sons watch because I wanted them to see this day, I wanted this to be something they remembered instead of being told about. God's at work, and I believe that, and I trust that. Now, God was at work for Daniel, and God brings him and his compatriots from Jerusalem to Babylon. And because of, of their age, because of their ancestry, they are brought into the service of the king. And they are put under the care and the direction 
of the king's chief servant. Now there's debate. Um, my Bible says the chief of the court officials in, in verse 3. But some Bible translation translate this eunuchs, and there's debate about whether Daniel and his compatriots would have been made eunuchs as part of being made high officials. And in some ancient cultures, that was definitely the custom. I don't know. I'm 50-50 on this. I remember in Bible college, I took a class on the book of Daniel, and I remember uh, one of the students was so adamant that this had happened to Daniel. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, ask your mom. It will not be an awkward conversation. But he was so adamant about it. And I remember just being like, what's the big deal? I'm 50-50 on this. And, and, I, and again, I, like I said last week, I'm not trying to make this a, a, a history class lecture or something from, from seminary. Daniel was definitely traumatized. Just being captured and taken away in chains is a traumatic experience. Was he also traumatized in this way? I'm 50-50 on it. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But I just say this, whatever trauma we are experiencing or have experienced or have, are enduring or will endure, God is with us. And you just say, well, how can God allow that? What do you want God to stop? God allows people to make their choices and people, because we're sinners, make bad choices that cause suffering. And that's why God sent Jesus. Well, I thought preachers did the, the gospel thing at the end. I'm telling you right now that what Daniel is going through is why we need Jesus, because we are broken people. What we saw on Wednesday is why we need Jesus. What we saw, what we've seen this whole year is why we need Jesus, because people are broken and people are lost and people are dying in their sins and people have been traumatized by the sins of others. Now Daniel is brought into Babylon, into captivity. He's put in this program of training. He's lucky. He's not being made the household slave of some um, general. He's not, he's not being put into some servitude role. He actually is going to come out, relatively speaking, okay, he's being put in the service of the king. He's being put in this three-year training program. He's going to be taught the language. He's going to be taught the culture. He's going to be taught the, the science and the literature of the day. He will become one of the most learned people of his day. He will become one of the most educated people of his day. And because of his proximity to the king, he will become one of the most influential people of his day because that was what the Babylonians did. They assimilated, they took, and then they said, all right, who's the best, the most talented? How can we then use them to further our empire? But Daniel had a problem. Daniel had a problem. How do you live in Babylon, this is Daniel's problem, how do you live in Babylon without losing your identity? And maybe you've guessed, but it's no different for us in 2021. How do we live as Christians, people of the kingdom of heaven? How do we live as people of the kingdom of heaven, as Christ followers, as Christians in 2021 in America without losing our identity? without just being absorbed into the rest of this world that rejects Jesus. How do we do that? 
Now, Daniel's problem was expressed in two very specific ways. And, and maybe this won't be your challenge or our challenge for how to live as exiles. But it was Daniel's challenge, and so we can learn some principles from it. Daniel's challenge was expressed in two different ways. It was expressed, verse 7, in his name, and verse 8, in his food. Let's start with his name. In verse 7, this is Daniel's problem. How do you live as an exile without losing your identity? It says that the, uh, the chief servant gave him and all of the other Jewish young men Babylonian names. I get asked often where my name came from, Dalhanek. It has a sort of Dutch spelling, yet it's not a Dutch name. Where did it come from? My great-grandfather, Alexander Dalhanek, was born in Vienna, Austria, and at age three months, his family got on a boat and came to America. But he wasn't Austrian. In fact, my great-grandfather, I remember, um, I'm, I'm the oldest of all grandchildren on all sides of my family. And so I am, I am one of just a couple of grandchildren in my generation who remember uh, my great-grandfathers on either side. And my great-grandfather, Alex, would talk about being Austrian. And so when I was 19 years old, in the summer of 2001, I got to go to Austria. And I thought, I am here. This is where my people come from. And then the next time I saw my uncle, it was a couple years later, and my uncle is sort of the keeper of family history. I said, I was in Austria. I was where our people are. And he said, no, we're not Austrian. What? Grandpa was born there. Yeah, yeah, he was born there, but he was an Austrian. We're Bohemian. I thought that was a song by Queen. No, 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 no. No, we're Bohemian. And uh, they probably changed the spelling of our name at Ellis Island. It's probably supposed to be Dolanik, spelled with a couple of E's and some of those apostrophes in weird places. And they changed their name. And that happened so often, right? You know, people would come to America, they'd get to Ellis Island, and then, you know, depending on who the, the customs official was bringing you in, what's your name? My name is Korczynski. All right, you're Martin Smith now. Maybe that happened in your family. So Daniel is given a new name, Belshazzar, or Belshazzar. Daniel, his Hebrew name, means God is my judge. But Belshazzar means Bel's prince, and Bel was one of the false gods that the Babylonians worshipped. So it's like saying, you know, um, Buddha's prince or Allah's prince. Like he, it's, it's, it's identifying him with a false god. Hananiah... In, in Hebrew means beloved by Yahweh. And his name was changed to Shadrach, which means illuminated by the sun god. Mishael, which meant who is as God, which is a, a way of saying like, there's nobody greater than God, Mishael. His name was changed to Meshach, which means who is like Shak, which um, they believe was uh, the Babylonians' version of Venus or Ishtar. It's, a, it's basically, again, your name meant the praise of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're going to give you a new name that praises a false God. And then Azariah meant the Lord is my help, and it was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Nego, which is one of their 
many false gods. So how do you, you're now given this new name, this new label, this new identity, but it's not who you are. You are still a servant of the one and true God, and yet you're being told something else. How do you do that? The other challenge he has is in verse 9. He's given the choicest meat and wine. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. It's not going to surprise you to know that if you're Jewish, you don't eat bacon. Right? I love a good kosher deli. You go there, you get the pastrami sandwich, you get the dill pickle on the side. Big fan. If I go to a place and it says kosher or halal, which is the Muslim version, and the reason that uh, the Muslim version is so similar is because uh, Muhammad basically stole a lot of ideas from Judaism when he established his religion. But if it says halal or kosher, I know it's going to be a good meal. That's like a sign of a good time for me. But there's no pork. There's no hot dogs. There's no bacon. That's not always bad, by the way. I am a firm believer in a kosher hot dog. I know that's totally off subject, but when I go to the ballpark, and I'm so excited for when this pandemic's over and I can go to a baseball game again, and I go to the ballpark, I love a good kosher hot dog. Totally off the point. But here's Daniel's problem. Some of that meat is not kosher. Some of that meat is going to be pork. Some of that meat is not going to be allowed for him directly as a follower of God. And then the rest of that meat... You know, it was a problem for the early Christians. What do you do? Because if you went to the market to get meat, the chances are very, very good that that cow or that lamb or that ram or or whatever, you know, it is, was taken and sacrificed before the false idol of that village or town or city. And then it was taken to the market to sell. So can you eat meat that has been sacrificed to a false god? The Apostle Paul said, you know, hey, just do everything with a clear conscience. And uh, if that's something that you and your conscience and your spirit say, I can't do, then he said, don't do it. But, you know, you don't also need to go like every time you go over to somebody's house for a barbecue. Hey, was the beef in this burger sacrificed to an idol? He said, just eat the beef. And, you know, if if you know you're going someplace that like makes a big, it's, it's on the sign, you know, come here for the best burgers in town. We only sacrifice it to this God. Well, then, then if that offends you, don't go. So here's Daniel dealing with food that some of it is a direct violation of God's command. And remember, they are in exile because their people had not walked in God's ways. And so he, now he's determined, I'm going to walk in God's ways. So some of this meat is a direct violation of God's command, and some of it is an implied violation of God's command. And the wine, I I find no biblical case to say that, that wine or alcohol is forbidden to a Christian. But sobriety is our value. Sobriety is our value. And we're going to find later in the book of Daniel that in the courts of the kings of Babylon, that wine consumption was at a substance abuse level. And so Daniel is rejecting 
direct, obvious, clear-cut violations of God's law. He is rejecting implied violations of God's law. And then he is rejecting things that will lead in those situations to sin and debauchery. When Jesus took the cup, we always say the cup and passed it around in communion, but that cup was full of wine. But the cup that Daniel was being given was a cup with a lot of refills. The cup with a lot of refills. And so we emphasize sobriety as a Christian value because we know that there is a blessing to being sober, to not being addicted, to not being mastered. And can you live out your sobriety um, and, and have a beer or a glass of wine? You know what? I know a lot of Christians, you know, when I lived in England, some of the most godly, devout people uh, would go to the pub because that was just what you did on a Saturday afternoon. And I remember being 19 years old and coming from a, a very, uh, you know, teetotaler kind of household. And, and then you find out that some of the most godly people in your church, uh, church is over and you know, instead of going to McDonald's, they go to the pub uh, because that's just what you did. And uh, I remember going to um, C.S. Lewis. I remember going to Oxford and I went to the church where C.S. Lewis attended and then he's buried there. And then they said, oh, yeah. And then down the road, that's the pub he would go to right after church. That's very different than my Christian experience. We're not talking about that. We're talking about sobriety. So Daniel is chosen. I am going to reject these direct and then implied violations. So here's his problem. I've been given a new name, and then I've been given these things that I am not to partake in. So then how do I deal with this? Well, verse 8 is very key. Verse 8 says that Daniel resolved. He resolved not to defile himself. Resolved, or what I might call intentional living. You know, some people live their lives very unintentionally. I graduated high school. What do I do? I don't know. I guess I'll go to college now. Why? I don't know. That's just what you do. And then they get like, you know, one of those kind of blank check sort of degrees, you know, a communications major was the thing when I, 20 years ago, you know, uh, that was the thing you were told to get if you didn't know what to do. Uh, you just get a communications major and that means whatever you want it to mean. And then they just go through life and then they, oh, I guess, you know, you look nice. I'll get married to you. Or I guess we'll get buy a house next. Like there's no intentionality in how they live. And there have been people that have gotten away with it for whatever reason, because they just happen to live in a moment where it doesn't take much to follow God. And let's be honest, there have been moments in human history. I don't think that they have been the, the norm, but there have been decades or even a handful of decades where a person could live unintentionally and still follow God, generally speaking. I don't believe we are living in one of those moments. Daniel was certainly not living in one of those moments. He resolved in himself. He was intentional. I am going to choose how I live so that I do not defile myself before God, so that I don't shame myself before God, so that I live in the ways that God wants me to live. Because he is God, and I'm not. Because I've seen what happens when you don't walk in God's ways. 
And how did that work out? Well, see, Daniel had an experiment. He's intentional. Now, when you're intentional, you got to figure out how to do things. So he comes up with this experiment. And, and in verse, uh, verse 9, it says, uh, or sorry, um, yeah, verse 9, uh, he asked the chief for permission not to eat the meat and drink the wine. So he sets up this experiment um, in, uh, in verse 12. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with the other young men who eat all the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance to what you see. Now there's a question, is he putting God to the test? Because Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 verse 7 said, Test not the Lord your God. Don't try God's patience. But in Malachi, who's one of the prophets of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, God says, hey, here's this thing I'm telling you to do. Put me to the test and see if it works. I think that's its own message. It's its own sermon. But I'll say this. I don't believe that Jesus, uh, that Jesus was speaking about Daniel when he said, test not the Lord your God. I, I believe that what's going on here is that Daniel is stepping out in faith. He's not testing God to see if, you know, come on, God, you know, he's not being flippant or, or um, self-focused in any way. He's saying, I'm going to take the things that God has said, and I'm going to put it to the test. This is what God's told me to do, and I'm going to do it. What Jesus is talking about was the temptations of Satan, where Satan's basically like, go and do whatever you want to do, and then see if, you know, if God will still uh, protect you anyway. What Daniel's saying is, I'm going to do the things that God told me to do, and then I am going to see God's hand at work. There's a difference. And this test is scientific and reasonable. Hey, take us, me and my four friends, and we are going to eat only vegetables and water, and then everyone else, which by the way, includes other Jewish captives. It's very reasonable to assume that these five were not the only people in this program from Jerusalem. But these were the five that had determined to follow God. And Daniel was their spokesman. But it's a reasonable and scientific test. Here's your control group. Here's your variable group. See what happens. Christians are not unreasonable. We shouldn't be anyway. We shouldn't be anti-science. I actually think it's the rest of the world. Get to that in a minute. The cool thing is that you see God at work the whole time. In verse 9, God gave favor to Daniel. In verse 9, it says that Daniel caused the official who was overseeing him to have favor for him. In verse 17, it says, if I could get the paper turned, here we go. It says that God gave these five young men knowledge and understanding. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't have to apply themselves, that they didn't have to work hard, that they didn't have to put the effort in, but God gave them grace in their work. In verse 18, it says that at the end of the time, they were given favor. The king looked on them and, re and recognized them above all the others. And in verse 15, it's implied uh, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished. So the, the implication is that God was with them. Because quite honestly, I do not believe that Daniel chapter 1 is some kind of uh, argument for Christian vegetarianism. 
If you, if you want to be a vegetarian for health reasons, I can understand that, but you need protein. The human body needs protein and you're going to get protein and iron and minerals through meat. It's healthy to eat some meat, generally speaking. If you, in ancient times, don't eat meat, you're losing on your main protein source. And if you don't drink wine and you drink only water, you're actually putting yourself at a little bit of risk because ancient water supplies were notorious sources of foodborne illness. So you're actually taking a little bit of a chance. Wine would have been a, a, a safer so, uh, source of, of liquid hydration. And yet at the end of it, they looked healthier. God was at work. And that's the result. Verse 15, he looks healthier. Again, Christians should not be anti-science, anti-reason, and I don't believe that we are. Think about so many things that the world says it wants. Do you want to end human trafficking? Think about it. Do you want to end human trafficking? The world says it wants to end that. Any politician will tell you that. Any community activist will tell you that. We want to end human trafficking. Every piece of research says that human trafficking is linked to drugs. It is linked to um, sexualization. It is linked to, to all kinds of things that the, that the Christian faith says, the, that God says is wrong. And yet, if you say, okay, you want to get rid of human trafficking, here are the things that the studies have shown are linked to that. Can we get rid of those things? People will say, no, we can't do that. We can't shut down the, the clubs and the, the, the businesses on McLaughlin that are all linked to human trafficking. Can't do it. What about divorce? The divorce rate is not 50% in America, but it is too high. Every study about the key factors of divorce show that living a life of purity the way that God has instructed us to, that living a life of humility and selflessness the way that God has instructed us to and that Jesus has modeled for us, will lead to success in marriage. Yet continually, the advice, the wisdom given by this world is live for yourself, do what makes you happy, and, and if, it, if you can stay together while you're married, that's great. Here's Daniel doing something that seems crazy, but the results are in. The wisdom of the world in that day would have said, this is nuts, but the results are in. He and his friends are healthier. He and his friends, verse 17, have excelled in knowledge. Daniel specifically has been empowered by God and is given uh, extra wisdom that we're going to see kind of played out in the next few weeks. They are living in favor. That's something to note. Just because Christians are living differently, it does not mean that Christians should live defiantly. Just because Christians are living differently, it doesn't mean that we should live defiantly. I don't think I should get special treatment at work because I'm a Christian. Now I know I'm a pastor, but I spent a long time 
working outside of the church. I always asked for Sundays off, or at least Sunday mornings so I could go to church. I didn't work Easter or Christmas, and I was real clear about that, you know. Uh, we, and, and it was right, and it was good, but when I was a manager, I bent over backwards because I had a Muslim employee, and I, he needed to observe Ramadan. I bent over backwards for him, and my boss said, good, you need to do that. And I thought that was the right thing to do. And then I said, okay, but Easter, Easter's my big day as a Christian. I don't work on Easter. And he said, well, it's, you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's not a, you know, we can't give you Easter off. I said, yes, you can. But I didn't live defiantly, right? Like, like I don't expect special treatment because I'm a Christian, but I do live differently. I'm, he lived in favor. I don't need the world to like me or you or us. I, I spoke about it um, actually on, the, on a recent 20-minute Bible study episode. I talked about the danger of trying to be respectable uh, to the world. But at the same time, if Christians have a reputation of being, uh, let's just say jerks, how is that helping anything? The results of Daniel following God was not that everybody thought he was a jerk. It was that he was living in favor. And because he was healthier, because he was excelling in knowledge, because he was living in favor, he had sustainability. Verse 21 says that he continued in his role until the reign of Cyrus the king. Cyrus was the king Decades later, Daniel had long-term success. Long-term success. Just before I recorded this, I started recording this, I was talking to an old friend of mine, and um, we both came up at the same church, and we both know a lot of the same people, and we were just talking about, um, you know, the sad reality of so many people that we both know who at one point were claiming faith and now they're just broken. They either don't profess any faith at all or they still profess faith, but they're just, their lives are a wreck because they didn't follow God's ways. And I'm not saying that to say that, that me or my friend are any better than any of them. But there is a difference in an overall trajectory of life where we say, I'm going to follow what God has for me. I'm not perfect. I never, it's not, I make mistakes. But in general terms, the trajectory of my life has been that Jesus is real and Jesus is Lord. That's been the general terms of my life. And I believe that that builds long-term sustainability. And I've seen people just come in like, woo, everything's about, I, I, I'm just going to be all about church, all about faith. And then boom, they blow up because there was a lot of show. There was a lot of talk, but these basic things, these basic health things, these basic sustainability things, these basic identity things, they hadn't been taking care of those things and they just flamed out. And then there are people who just slowly and steadily walk with God. And that leads to long-term health. 
they're they're different, but they're not defiant. You know, Daniel, we're going to see verse eight. He's given this new name, Belshazzar. But then right after he's given that name in verse seven, verse eight, but Daniel determined in his heart. So Daniel's saying, that's not who I am. I'm Daniel. I'm, I'm part of God's people. This is who I am. Yet, we're going to find out as we read through the book of Daniel that their official names were those names, that when they went before the king, the king called him Belshazzar. The king referred to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That they walked with God in obedience, in faithfulness, in humility. And because of that, they were able to live sustainably and as much as possible. Yes, were there, I mean, I'm not saying everybody liked them because there are literally large parts of the book of Daniel that are about plots to kill them. But they were able to do what God called them to do. They were faithful in the same direction for a long time. Because they took care of these basic things. They said, this is who I am, and this is what I will do and what I won't do. Because even though I'm living in exile, even though I'm part of the kingdom of heaven, but now I'm living among the kingdoms of earth, even though this is not my home, I'm not going to forget who I am and who I serve and what I am to do and what I'm not to do. And I believe that Jesus gives us the power to live victoriously for him if we will surrender ourselves to that life change that he brings. And so if you've been watching this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus hears your prayer when you call out to him in faith. And if you are a Christian and you say, I know that Jesus is Lord and I have faith in him and I know that he has forgiven my sins, but I haven't been living in victory. I've, I've lost some part of my identity. I believe that Jesus does the work through the Holy Spirit of cleansing us and making us like Jesus and bringing us to a place of victory. And when God hears the prayer of the saint that says, Lord, bring me to that place I believe he hears that prayer too, wherever you're at, however you're listening. God knows where you are. God knows what you're going through. God hears your prayers. May God bless you this week. May God give you the peace that comes from him. May God give you favor with your neighbors. May God give you victory as we follow Jesus. Amen. And God bless you.